and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do their claims hold water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? We are now on episode 47 and I am Frederick, your guide into the world of pseudo-archaeology. It is Halloween season, meaning it's time for a spooktacular... That won't be annoying at all. In honor of this, I've watched episode 14 from season 3 called Aliens and the Un. Dead. So in this episode we will look closer at medical cannibalism, mummies and the book of dead. That's not all. We also got vampire and if uh, Kamasots and Draugr could be alien vampires. While dealing with what's well, often described as monsters in popular culture, this episode will not be particularly scary other than the misinformation on our television. I will, however, deal with uh, macabre, such as death, human sacrifice and cannibalistic medicine. As usual, nothing explicit or graphic, but I'm just giving you, my listener, a small heads up on this. Remember that you find sources, resources and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would appreciate it if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. And if you want to learn how to support the show and the Archaeological Podcast Network, I will tell you how to do that and a bit more at the end of the episode. Now that we've finished with our preparation, let's dig into the episode. Let's start this spooktacular by talking about mummies, something we all know well from our popular media and a topic that has fascinated people for centuries. Ideas and legends have been spread about mummies in Europe since, well, at least the 11th century. In these earlier periods, the mummy was not really seen as a person, nor really as an object, but mostly as medicine, how strange is that? sound to our modern ears, by 1500 CE, any pharmacy worth its salt would stock mumia, a mixture made out of powdered mummies from Egypt to cure all sorts of ailments. This rather strange idea originates from a very unfortunate translation issue. The word mummy originates not from ancient Egypt, but most likely from modern Persia. And the word there for mum, which translates to something like vax. You see, in some of the Persian hills, bitumen is seeping naturally out of the rocks. And it's a highly viscous liquid that might be more familiar to you as its uh, well, modern name, asphalt. So, it is a semi-solid petroleum substance that was used in some instances in medicine to cure, for example, broken limbs and other similar issues. And it became known as an expensive but highly effective cure for, well, especially broken limbs and similar illnesses. So, mummy was commonly known in the crescent area. However, Carl Dannefeldt noted that there is a local name in some part of Persia for this substance that's uh, mumja. And the Arabic word for mummified Bobby is uh, 
mumia. A physician in Baghdad called Rajesh referred to mumia as a medical bitumen around 900 CE. Mumia as a medical bitumen was shortly after picked up by yet another famous physician named Ibn Sina. From there it spread and started to enter European writings where the translation issues soon became apparent, well at least with our 2020 hindsight. Latin writers such as Gerard of Cremona and Constantinus Africanus translated mumia to refer to a substance originating from mummified bodies in Egypt. From there the definition of mumia was tied forever to mummified bodies. That they either contained the substance that they used or were the well were the substance themselves. Like almost a game of telephone, the original meaning of the, the black shiny asphalt from Persia became a black mummified human. It did not help either that the early idea was that mummification was uh, performed with the help of just asphalt. However, the idea that consuming human remains could cure different conditions was not really novel in Europe. Between around year zero and about the 6th century, gladiator blood was used to cure epilepsy. Human fat was used in ointments and remedies around the 15th century, so medical cannibalism was rather uh, accepted practice in Europe when mummy powder became a highly sought-after remedy. But when did mummy become synonymous with a sort of monster? For that, we might have to thank uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes, the Doyle famous for Sherlock Holmes and his now novel Lot Number 249. Arthur had incorporated mummies and Egypt in their writings for quite some time before this. For example, Jane C. Loden published 1827 the book The Mummy or a tale of 22nd century, in which a reanimated Cheops experienced the 22nd century. Even Edgar Allan Poe wrote a mummy story, but it's maybe more a satirical story than a scary one. A bit strange coming from Poe there, but Doyle was the first to portray mummies as a monster, something menacing, something dangerous. Quite a contrast to his other novel, The Ring of Toth, which could almost be well, <laughs> described as a love story between an Egyptologist and a mummy. But there, there is also the hunt for the elixir of life, eternal science, and almost a romantic idea of ancient science that's not strange for coming from Doyle there, since he was uh, involved with quite um, interesting sciences and all of that. Why, however, are we talking about mummies other than it's time for spook tackler? Yeah, it's not annoying at all that. For starters, putting things in context like uh, this puts our ideas of mummies in a bit of perspective. Mummies are, in a strange way... A odd mixture of a human remain and an artifact. And I think it's good that we remind ourselves that these were humans with hopes and dreams and not just monsters. But also ancient aliens have found a way to put a spin on the Egyptian burial costumes. So let's start with something that many of you might have some misconception about without really knowing it. The Book of the Dead. To help Tutankhamun on his journey into the afterlife, 
The walls and ceiling of his burial chamber were decorated with illustrations from the Egyptian sacred Book of the Dead. So here's the thing. This is not something that only ancient alien writers get wrong, but quite many of us actually. It's a bit understandable to think about the Book of the Dead as one complete story or narrative that is the same throughout the ages. But a more correct view of the Book of the Dead is as a compilation of smaller pieces of text. And we refer to these pieces of text as spells. And these spells range from very long, such as the Book of the Dead, Spell 17. And these chapters are often shortened to DB. And I will do the same throughout this text. So DB 17, or Book of the Dead, Spell 17, is one of the spells found in, well, most mortuary text, identifying the deceased with the creator god Nun. And then we can compare this rather long test to the relatively short chapter DB6, found in also most mortuary texts, but basically forces your servant dolls, the Ushapti, to come to life. This is a later name originating from the German word Tutenbach. This can mean death register or the more scary sounding book of the dead. The people in Egypt also refer to the document found in the tombs as Qudub al-Umvat and it's for sure that these terms come into use during the 19th century. The Egyptians call the text book of going forth by day. These mortuary writings were supposed to help the deceased journey through the underworld and be reborn as an Ankh, a glorified spirit. The going forth by day part, the name of the text, refer to the Ba, one part of the human soul. If all the rites and spells were correctly done, you would have a fully functioning Ba that could move between our world and the next. That way, the Ak would gain rejuvenation and rebirth with the cosmos on each day, basically at sunrise. And when we speak about the Book of the Dead, a more fitting description of these spells might be mortuary texts, because we have seen variation in these texts throughout the Old, Middle and New Kingdoms. You might be familiar with the pyramid text and the coffin text. As the name suggests, the pyramid texts are mortuary texts carved into the pyramid walls. But if you go into, well, Khufu's pyramid at the Giza Plateau, you will quickly realize that the walls are bare. That's because the practice was started later by Pharaoh Unas around 2375 BCE. And Unas had about 283 spells, many of which were found in Pepe I and Merenre I pyramids. And, and when I was at the university studying, I get, got to learn that uh, these texts, the pyramid texts, were introduced to the commoners during the first intermediate period when the society had collapsed and the people were, you know, 
plundering the tombs of the kings. And when they entered the tombs, they saw that the king had all of these spells to make them immortal. So they started to copy these spells and democratize them, so to say, uh, democratize the afterlife, basically. <laughs> I must admit that I liked this story. And why not? It's an exciting story of how the lower classes gained access to an afterlife not meant for them. Since then, however, the <sighs> pesky boring research have been done and it seems as the coffin and the pyramid text are both built on a much earlier tradition. So in several pyramid texts we see that the spells are composed to someone who is not royalty or does not refer to the king as the beneficiary of the spell. And in the mortuary temples we can see lists that contain the same items as the pyramid text. These items are in turn depicted in private chapels as offerings to the deceased. And in the tombs of official, we find in their biographies, yes, uh, highly official did actually write their biographies on the wall of their tombs. And in them, these uh, biographies, they usually refer to themselves as now being Ak, a Holy Spirit again, a term used in the pyramid text when proceeding to the next world. These texts were also to have been written originally by Toth, the god of writing, from whom magic and science came from. And spells were a very integral part of the Egyptian society and their religion. The sun god Ra, as an example, owned his continued trip with the sun disk to just Toth. There was this horrible monster named Apep, who laid in wait each morning when Ra was trying to get the sun disk up on the sky ready to attack just as the sunrise started. And the gods, they could not kill this monster. This dreadful beast were just immune to all their weapons or all their magic. But Toth, he managed to create a spell that made the creature limbs lame. So each morning, the sun god Ra, when he tried to rose up on the sky with the sun disk, he cast his spell on a pep who go limp and Ra can safely continue up with the sun each morning. And writing things down in ancient Egypt also ensure that the rite and spell that you write down is uh, performed for eternity. So if a priest were no longer there to utter the spells and perform the rituals, the spells and offerings would be completed anyway. The offerings would still be presented and the Ak could rejuvenate each day even if there was no one there to give them any physical offering. It was a sort of failsafe, so to speak. And the coffin text started to become a thing around the 11th dynasty and used some of the pyramid text as a foundation. But the spell could vary depending on time, place and how much well room there was in the coffin. It was important to note that there was no standardized version of this mortuary text. Or rather it did not become standardized until 600 BCE. But the practice evolved and the spells were written on linen wrapped around the mummy to get more room. And later they could uh, or they 
would start to use papyrus, which most of us refer to when speaking about the Book of the Dead. So while they didn't say something incorrect there, I felt it could benefit from learning more about Book of the Dead for us. It's only a scratch on the surface, and if you go to the show notes, you find more resources if you want to learn more about this particular topic. But let's continue and see if we can find some connection between Egypt mummies and aliens. Archaeologists have found that in Egypt, like Tutankhamun or his sister, who is this statue here, Meritaten, had these strange elongated heads. You have to wonder, were they trying to imitate extraterrestrials who look like this? Or perhaps they in fact were extraterrestrials and this is how they naturally looked. So I want to make something clear here. Ancient Egypt did not practice artificial cranial deformation. While there are instances of the practice, the oldest confirmed of ACD in Egypt is around 600 BCE. And Tutankhamun died around 1323 BCE. Research has been done on what's believed to be, well, both Akhenaten's cranium and of course King Tut. No one has so far gone and claimed that they show signs of artificial cranial deformation. Of course, if you're not David Childress, then I assume. And we have discussed the problematic history of the cephalic index in the past, but if we want to discuss long and short heads, it has its uses. It's just that we don't put any value about worth within these measurements. So Tutankhamun has a cephalic index of... 83.9. With this number, he barely, barely qualifies for the Branschlefic group. The most common cutoff value for men for this is around 83.1. Brachycephalic skulls are short and broad. In the animal kingdom, a pug is the maybe most extreme example of this shape. So whenever you think about Tutankhamun, you can think about pugs and you get the skull form quite well and nice there in your head. In a study from 2010 called Ancestry and Pathology in King Tutankhamun's Family, the author used molecular genetics and ancient DNA to see if any condition could cause elongated skulls within these individuals. Some medical conditions are just associated with elongated skull. While it not, or while it's not really an artificial deformation, we might be able to see some genetics that could indicate that they had these um, these conditions. However, when studied, the author noted no signs of quote unicomastia craniosynthosis, Antley-Bixler syndrome, or deficiency in uh, cytherome P450, oxidorectutases, Marfan syndrome, or related disorder. And the study did not focus only on Tutankhamun, but his whole family that we have found so far. The cephalic index and genetics were well, more or less the same for the entire family. The depictions of the family with longer heads seems to be a pure artistic choice in, to some extent. It's still a 
relatively open question as to why they portray it like this, but the head was not associated with intelligence per se in ancient Egypt. The Egyptians namely believed that you thought with your heart, and it's a pretty logical idea when you think about it, since it's the heart that reacts when you think about things and, you know, start to pump slower or faster, depending on what's going on in your body or mind. And the most likely answer to why Akhenaten chose to depict him and his family the way they did was, in a sense, to separate them from the rest of society. He wanted to stand out since they were, you know, living representation of the sun god Aten. In places where we see ACD or artificial cranial deformation is not as much as the society wants one or two to seek out, but the act is done as a form of ethnic unity and camaraderie. But, well, where, where did these uh, ideas originate from? Well, then in ancient Egypt, Giorgio Sukulos have uh, answers, if believe at least, I think. I'm suggesting that mummification is based on our ancestors who watched extraterrestrials getting ready for a flight through deep space. One possibility is to be frozen or to be put into animated sleep where you're inside this quote-unquote sarcophagus, this coffin, and so our ancestors might have watched this type of preparation and they misunderstood this for the gods dying. And so our ancestors mummified themselves in order to be ready for the return of the gods with the hopes that the gods would reanimate them from the dead in the future. Now, this is a fantastic story, right? It's the most creative idea that an ancient alien proponent has developed so far. It's quite a fun sci-fi spin, but as usual, things start to fall apart when we compare this to the reality of what ancient Egyptians believed. So let's deal a little bit with the Egyptian afterlife. And this topic is a bit more complex than our Western idea of the afterlife, especially if you're part of the Christian, Muslim, or well, even the Jewish faith to some extent. Both Christians and ancient Egyptians to some extent have the idea of being judged in the afterlife, but it's only the judgment part that is similar between these two religions. While in Christianity you just go to heaven or whatever and you get judged there and then, well, it's a quite easy trip. This was not the case in ancient Egypt. Just a trip to the point where your life would be judged was a hassle. And that's why you needed the Book of the Dead and the Coffin Text or the Pyramid Text. You needed to know all the secret handshake. You needed to have some protection with you. And you needed to know the secret passwords. And also, your chances might be limited if your family didn't add the proper rituals. For example, if they did not include DB23, for example, the ceremony to open your mouth, you would have trouble with some of the challenges. And DB23 goes something like this. My mouth is given to me. My mouth is opened by Ptah. With that chisel of metal, which he opened the mouth of the gods, I am Sekhmet Vadyat, who dwells in the west of heaven. 
I am Sajid among the souls of Ang. Because when you had passed through all the gates, made all the proper handshake, answered all the riddles, bested all the beats, uh, getting the you know magic ring, the person would enter the hall of two truth. There, there were supposed to recite the negative confessions, handily listed for them. So if they didn't remember, they had it in DB one hundred twenty-five. And contains things like, I gave bread to the hungry, beer to the thirsty, clothes to the naked. I have not deprived an orphan of his property. I'm not sure why they felt that you needed to specify that you didn't steal from orphans, but maybe there was a reason. (laughs) But after this, the famous ritual of weighing the heart against the feather, a representation of mouth, the God of truth would take place. And if the heart was lighter than a feather, the person could become part of Osiris. And when that happened, you became transformed into Ak and had a pleasant afterlife in the Duat. However, if you failed the trial, well, then you were no more. The ancient Egyptians did not have a concept of hell. You either went to the next world or you basically ceased to exist. And that fate was utterly terrifying to the Egyptians. So this was why you basically needed the Book of the Dead or the Coffin Text or a mixture of everything, basically. And I brought up of two concepts earlier that we just heard, Ak and Ba. Ak, as you noticed, is the person's spirit of the death and the representation of the individual. Then we have the Ba, one part of your soul, basically. And in Egyptian art, it is represented by a bird with a human face. And this part of the soul stayed with the body within the dark tomb during the night and during the day. It went out in the sunshine. As you remember, this is the origin of the Egyptian name for the Book of the Dead. Book of going forth by day. And then we have the Ka, the life energy. And basically a body double, more or less. It's represented by two arms stretched right up. I might make one American or two happy now. It's like the referee in your American football thingy when you do a field goal or if you become a field goal. I'm not sure how this part works, but it's what the referee at least sign when a field goal happened. A common euphemism for to die was back then to say to go to one's car. While this part of your soul existed at birth, the Ka was most associated with death. It was also part of the soul that needed material sustenance. So the grave goods was given to ensure the Ka would not starve. And in a pinch of writings or depicting rituals of providing food and beer on the grave's walls or on objects could suffice as an alternative if nobody was there giving the offerings. But to live again, the body needed to be intact. Without it, the Ka and the Ba had no anchor and the Ankh would cease to exist, basically. That's why they mummified the bodies and even created backup devices like Ka and Ba statues. Even the coffins were turned into a sort of failsafe 
During the Old Kingdom, box coffin were mainly used, but it would change and anthropoid coffin had replaced the box version by the time of roughly Middle Kingdoms. And anthropoid coffins is, uh, well, human-shaped coffins, and you had these elaborate depictions of the human. Again, so... The Ka and the Ba would know where their, well, body were. So everything within the grave by at least Middle Kingdom was more or less designed to ensure that you would have an afterlife. Because, here's the kicker, if your body was destroyed, your Ba could not recognize it and you were gone. You were dead again. The idea that the ancient Egyptian tried to imitate alien cryostasis does not really fit well within this narrative and really doesn't make any sense. However, it is a, it is interesting that you could be thrown out even if you enter the duat or their, the ancient Egyptian's idea of heaven. So even if you enter the afterlife, you could still be yanked away from it, basically. And during this time, they thought that the Ak, Ba, and Ka existed alongside each other. And so you notice that the Egyptian afterlife is far more complex than the ancient alien theorists give them credit for. While we could spend, well, much more time on mummies and afterlife, we will leave this topic here for now. The show did not go into, well how to perform mummification here. And I think the topic deserves a lot of attention and most likely its own episode, if not, well, at least its own segment. So keep an eye out for that in the horizon future. Let's have a break here. And um, when we return, we will deal with the vampires. Welcome back. Let's continue this spooktacular into the night's horror by examining the vampire, a creature that has captivated our imagination for centuries. Like the Egyptian mummy, the vampire has been a solid staple of our popular media, such as poems, books, movies, and whatever, since mid-1700s at least, maybe not the movies part, but the Books and poems, books and poems. And it's somewhere there the idea of the sophisticated vampire villain would start to take shape. While we often associate vampire lore with, you know, the Slavic regions and, well, Romania, these creatures could be found in many, many other locations. However, they drastically differ from each other and the only similarities often limited to being, well, undead and consuming a living person's life force. Even such a simple thing like where a vampire would bite you differs across, well, Europe to start with. Today, the, you know, vampires associated chiefly with drinking blood out from one's neck, but not all vampires drink blood to start with. And if they would bite you, their location could differ among the Kashuban population in modern Poland. The vampire would bite you in your left breast. In Russia, they make a hole in your chest above your heart. And in Gdansk in Poland, they would nibble a little bit on your nipple. Some will drink blood, some will eat flesh, and others will just consume your life force. And how a vampire was created differs to the extreme. In Greece, you could become a vampire simply by, you know, 
animal jumping over your corpse. In Russia, suicide or drowning victims were known to come back as vampires. But why are we talking about vampires other than it's, you know, spooktacular season? Again, still not annoying at all. I will let the narrator explain what we are doing here. Oaxaca, Mexico. Situated on a low mountain range rising above the central plain lie the ancient ruins of Monte Alban. Here, around 100 BC, researchers believe the Zapotec Indians worshipped a bloodthirsty Mayan god with the body of a man and the head of a bat. They called him Kamazots. Kamazots is a creature that seems to have created some confusion online and within the alien community. If you google Kamazots, one of the first images you will see is a Batman mask that looks to have been created by the Mayans, basically. It was not. It was created by the Mexican designer Anlita Kimbal in 2014 to celebrate the 75th anniversary of DC's Batman comic. It was part of an exhibition where several other artists released their version of Batman. With that out of the way, we can focus on if there was a god called Kamazots. The name in the kitchen language means uh, death bat. It is an appropriate name since the bats were symbols of rot, destruction and death in Mesoamerica. In some stories, the bats are associated with blood sacrifice and it seems if the people knew that the bats drank blood not by biting the victim, but by slicing a small wound and then lapping the blood from that wound. However, it's only two out of the 120 species of bats living in Mesoamerica that drink bloods. Most of the other eat fruit, nectar and of course insects. That some bats uh, snatch fruits out on the tree seems to be why the bats are associated with especially decapitation. You see, in the classic Maya society, bats are usually rendered with eyes almost <laughs> popping out of their sockets and symbols of death like bones and skulls around them. And in the post-classic Maya society, we start to see them more associated with sacrifice and they are depicted with flint knives and severed heads. And within the classic Zapotec, we mostly find bats painted on the funerary urns, but the depiction of the bat holding a ship's knives, as in the post-classic period, was also quite common in the Zapotec culture. And the most maybe well-known story featuring Kamasots might be the Kitsche Popolvu. This is the story we discuss in greater detail in episode 28. Popol Vuh is a story that in part follows the hero twins. And they are, in this section, about to play a match against the lords of the underworld. Now, these lords are not keen on the idea of, well, a potential loss, so they of course try to cheat. They let the hero twins sleep in the house of bat and why is it named like that well because it's of course filled with bats who are of course trying to kill the hero twins the twins manage to seek shelter inside their blowguns but uh, hanupu started to wonder if the sun would rise and he he peeked out and immediately one bat swooped down and took his head off 
The head was given to the lords of the underworld to use as a ball in the next game. The other brother, Sabalenke, got help from uh, opossum and other animals and replaced his brother's head with a pumpkin. Maybe a fitting choice in that case, but <laughs> the, camp, the bats clearly had their place within the mythology of Mesoamerica. But as far as I can tell, Camasots had no temples or cults. While having a vital position within the religion, they were not a god in their own right. And as far as we can tell, the chief patron deity of Mont Alban was uh, the rain god uh, Tsutsiyu. This god is often portrayed with a hooked nose and the tongue of a serpent. And the second popular deity is uh, Sipetotek. And this fellow is, uh, well, it's not the god of, for those faint of heart, no. The name translates to the flayed one. This god is often depicted dressed in human skin, wearing a headdress and a bloody knife in his hand. And Sipetotek was predominantly a god of agriculture. It was believed that he sacrificed himself by flaying off his own skin and put it out to nurture the fields. And during his festivals, one slave was often selected to stand in as representative of the gods and sacrifices for the festivals was then caught during the wars that they hold before these and the idea was with all these skins and all this blood the ground would uh, bear plenty of food and give them good harvest later in the fall and giving ancient some notes here i would have focused on sepitotic because it's kind of a better choice to be honest but I assume that they wanted a bad sense. It's more Western-centric. Speaking of Westernies, we will now move up to my neck of the woods and the cold, dark north just after these messages. I'm just going to pause the episode here and thank you, my dear listener, for tuning in. It's great having you here exploring the world of pseudoscience with me. If you want to support the cause of educating people and combating pseudoscience, I'd like if you become a Patreon or a paid subscriber of the show for as little as 250 per episode, which is less than what the Loch Ness Monster asked for. You will help me continue producing high-quality content and gain access to a treasure trove of exclusive bonus material. Imagine the benefits of becoming a paid subscriber where you gain VIP access to our exclusive pseudoscientific book club. You will have the opportunity to hear me read and discuss the works of our favorite on-screen experts for you. To sign up and become a paid subscriber, simply head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support. You will find all the information you need to join our community there. Your backing of the program would empower me to create more content that assists people while keeping the show as accessible as possible. So let's combat misinformation and pseudoscience together. Just head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support to sign up. Together we will uncover the truth one episode at a time. mythology, a Draugr was a person who lived a sinful life. After dying, they would come back from the dead and haunt the living. Some of you who listen might be most familiar with the Draugr from the game Skyrim, in which they are an animated corpse defending their tombs. But Draugr does not have 
a good counterpart within other cultures. Sure, as skeptics, we can argue here that it does not really matter if, because, you know, ghosts, vampires, other spirits, they aren't really real. But when we want to track an idea or folklore from an anthropological perspective, it does help if we are able to categorize it to some extent. And especially in Iceland, the medieval ghosts differ vastly from the ghosts we find out in the continent of Europe. In contrast to the well-known, you know, see-through specter, the Icelandic spirit came with a body. So here already they're more similar to our idea of the vampire, so to say. But the idea of the dragger is far more complicated than this. You see in all these stories that's usually claimed to contain examples of Draugr, the word Draugr is never used within these stories. In the Grettir's saga, it's often said that the character Glam is a Draugr, but the word Draugr is never used within the story. Instead, we see terms like Aptrogongur or Reimleikar being used in the story instead. And we see the exact same take place in the other common example like Laxtella or Eyrbrygge saga. We don't see the term in reference to the ghost at Froda or about Thorulf Lamefoot. While the term Draugr was used during the Viking and medieval era, we don't see it associated with any of the famous examples. Often we see being used to describe an enemy in other instances. But it is suggested that the term Draugr is connected to the poetic metaphor of describing the dead as wood. A poetic description we have preserved in Solar Jord goes as follows. Tunga min, vas till tres med tin och kolnat att fyr utan. My tongue was like wood and it was cold outside. Another poetic description is quote, a wooden log you were, reference to the creation of humans story, a wooden log Draugr you will become. What might be the real connection between Draugr and the undead in this story is that they are referred to as troll or troll-like. With troll or troll, I don't mean the creatures that turn into stone in the sunlight or fight uh, you know a fellowship of the ring in the mines of Amoria. Now in the Scandinavian languages troll troll can also be translated to magic or witchcraft. And it can be applied to witches, ghosts, demons or even giant creatures that one might find in Moria. Basically any outcast with magical properties would be affected by troll or use magical powers in general. But why is this glam fella associated with being a Draugr, while the word is never used? Well, it stems from how he became a Draugr, and what happened after. We also have the key on why the Draugr is associated with a vampire here. Glam did not start out as an undead creature of the night. He was actually a great fighter and monster hunter from Sweden. 
Within the Grettir's saga is a farmer named Thorallur or Thorhall. And he has uh, issues with, you know, evil spirits that drain the life force away from his sheep. And after, you know, complaining about his issues to one of his friends, he got the recommendation to hire Glam to, you know, solve these problems that they have with the spirits. And I like that in the story when Thorall points out to Glam that the you know, the place do have evil spirits, glamorators, ekki harderist, ek flykkur therur, sagdi glamorur, och fyki mer af audenflega. Such bugs will not scare me, cough glam. Life seems to me less irksome thereby. But glam should have been scared, because he did not survive the encounter with main vetter. The evil spirit. But here is why Draugr is more vampire than a ghost. If killed by this creature, you yourself become one. Another little factoid here is that we have some potential werewolf crossover because Glam is described after his death as having Ulfgrar a harslit, or in English with wolf grey hair. But as things turns out, Grettir is then called upon to solve this new creature that haunts the same valley. Glam killed the first, but then took his place there, so to see. There seems to be some sort of connection between these two monster hunters, Glam and Grettir, almost like basically the Winchester brothers in Supernatural. You know, saving people, hunting things, the family business. The two seem to have some sort of understanding between each other, and in the end, Glam is bested, but Grettir is hit by Glam's evil eye and then is in turn, he's not turned into a Draugr himself, but he becomes this cruel being and an outcast from society. And in the end, even Grettir is being referred to as trolled by a society that had started to shun him. It was almost after Draugr took part of his life force away from him. But what we learn here is that, in a sense, the Draugr or this type of undead is contagious, so it seems to get nourishment from the living, not from their blood, but their life force. And getting bitten or in contact with the Draugr can make you one yourself in the end. Another interesting aspect is that, as the show <laughs> points out, the curse seems to develop initially in selfish, greedy and evil persons and glam he was not really a great person therefore he was more susceptible to the curse compared to grettir but the curse can take a hold of a corpse if the person was evil in their life too something that becomes clear when reading laxdella saga and eierbrygga saga in laxdella viga hraprar is described as being unfair and next to paranoid in protecting his land from his neighbor. As his death draws near, Viga becomes more aggressive and upon his death he is described as being bad as he was in life, the worse he got in death. While dead, he is the same person, he's just much, much worse. And the story kind of repeats itself with Thorulf Lamefoot, except that Thorulf hates He hates anyone that's younger than him. Even his son gets a taste of that hatred. And in that story, the Draugr of Thorulf is again the same person, except his hatred increases again in death. And what connects these stories is that both men don't want really to give up their power and let the younger step forward. But none of them 
seem to be suffering. They don't feel anything from their fate, so to say, but their surroundings do. These spirits kill basically all of their old servants, family and their neighbors. Another interesting thing as William Sayer, medieval scholar, points out in the essay Alien and the Alienated is that ghosts are associated with evil or marginalized people in medieval Icelandic text. If you were in the outskirts of society, you were more likely to be associated with troll and undead than those who participated within the norms of the Icelandic society. But can we see that the Scandinavians during the Viking Age worry or take any precautions to avoid that people, you know, returned as undead? Kind of. We have at least Two runestones in Denmark. One is found at uh, Norre Nero uh, with signum DR211. On it we read Thörmundur Newt Kumbels or in English Thormund. Enjoy the burial mound. On stone DR239 located in Görlevs parish we have a spell written on the stone also. On it we can read... Thuthvi raised this den fancy after Uthinkur, Fothur Hanska Tumbler, Newtvel Kumbels, Fistil Mistil Kistil, Yak Satarunur Ret. And translated to English, we learn the following. Should we erect this stone after Odinkar? Enjoy the mound well, Fistil Mistil Whistle, I wrote the runes well. Uh, the word for word translation here would be thistle, mistle, small chest, but I decided to be a bit more artistic and keep the rhyme there. But the spell is also found on a Swedish stone, Öge 181, and also in Borgund Stave Church in Norway. But these two carvings seem to be aimed to keep the dead happy in the ground. We also find in Sweden a small bronze plate with a spell on it that seems to be aimed at keeping the dead down. The plate called the Högstena plate VG216 was found in 1920 when workers at a cemetery were doing some work on the ground and on it we can read in rather poorly and hastily written runes Gal anda vider Gangla vider, ridanda vider, vider rinanda, vider sitanda, vider siganda, vider faranda, vider flugihanda, skall allt fyrna okum döja. I galder towards the spirits. Towards those prone to walk, towards the rider, the runner, the sitting, towards the hardened, the travel, the flying one, the evil one will leave and die. So here we have some examples where it seems as if the people during the Viking Age tried to some degree to stop the dead from rising again. From the small samples, however, it's hard to say if this was a widespread practice, but... What we can say is that to some, this was a concern that they actually had, but not everyone would have the means to, you know, carve these spells into stone or bronze. And one could argue that, you know, that you would instead a more easily accessible, you know, 
item that basically everyone could get a hold of. Unfortunately, none of these uh, spell binds exist to our days, and it's more or less speculation on my end here. While these are your story, they do give us an insight into the world of medieval Scandinavians. The warnings and the lessons that they try to share through these stories on how to let the young generation go forward and lead the way and not keeping them down because that's how you turn into a drauger upon your death. While you won't suffer, your loved one definitely will. On that note, I will close out the episode. We did not find these elusive aliens this time either, but, well, maybe we have better luck next time. Until then, please spread the word by leaving a positive review on platforms like iTunes, Spotify, or among your fellow trench dwellers or archaeology uh, nerds for more information about me and the podcast check out thingupancientaliens.com you will find an extensive list of sources and resources and of course some reading recommendations for those eager to expand their knowledge on the subject matter in this episode if you want to support the show head over to patreon.com slash thingupancientaliens or if you want to get the most out of your book Head over to astrologicalpodcastnetwork.com where you get tons, tons of bonus content, Slack channels and early ad-free episode. That membership covers every, uh, every podcast within the network, so you get a great amount of content for your hard-earned money. And if you want to contact me, that can be done through, well, most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions or Want to write that email in all caps? You find my contact info on the website. Sandra Martlor created the intro music and our outro is by the band called Tralsgruv who sings their song Foliehat. Links to both of these artists can be found within the show notes. Until next time, keep showing that science. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. <laughs>